Welcome to the Red Life Podcast, a podcast about living as a socialist in this world. I'm your host, Kieran Fatima, here with my co-host, Moxie. If you like what you hear and want some bonus content, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash redlifepodcast. Today we're discussing how the COVID-19 crisis has been dealt with in various countries around the world, especially focusing on socialist countries around the world and how the crisis has been dealt with by Cuba, China and Vietnam versus how it's been dealt with by the US and Canada and other capitalist states. So we're going to be doing a pretty detailed analysis of the tactics that were used by socialist countries to limit the number of cases of infections that took place, as well as deaths, of course. So say hello to my co-host, Moxie. Hi. So the population of the U.S. is 328 million people. It has, as of today, September 1st, 2020, over 6 million cases of coronavirus and over 183,000 deaths. It has the most number of deaths and the most number of cases in the world. Meanwhile, Canada has a population of about 37 million. It has 131,000 cases and a little over 9,100 deaths as of today. Cuba, which has a population of 11.5 million, has had about 4,000 cases and 94 deaths as of today. China, which has four times the population of the United States, or 1.4 billion people, has had a total of 85,000 cases and a little over 4,600 deaths. And Vietnam, which has a population of 95 million, has had 1,044 cases and 34 deaths as of today. Mm-hmm. So we're going to look at some of the strategies that have worked really well for socialist countries, Cuba, China, and Vietnam, and at the same time, what has failed to work in some capitalist countries like the U.S. and Canada. Moxie, do you want to start us off with uh, focusing on the U.S. and Canada? Yeah. So the United States is absolutely the worst country in the world that has handled the uh, this pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic. One of their biggest strategies, and still is to this day, is to blame China, calling it the Chinese virus, and how we always, you know, how Trump always emphasizes the China virus, the Chinese virus. So that has led, because that started very early on in January, right? And he didn't have any response to this whatsoever other than blame China. This is the Chinese virus and And they were they were ignoring it, right? They were ignoring the virus. They were totally ignoring the virus. Like they had very early on knew about this virus happening, but they didn't actually put together a task force until January the uh, the 21st, so end of January. It was in the same week that uh, the World Health Organization declares a global pandemic. So it took them so long to even just decide that they were going to have to handle this in some way. And then they still continue to downplay it, from what I remember. Totally. They completely downplayed it. Because since January the 5th, they knew about the potential of this virus becoming a pandemic. So Trump immediately goes into a blame China situation, which then allowed for conspiracy theories to go on the rise. They skyrocketed on social media and all of this misinformation was put out there and there was no stop around it. And like it just kept continuing, continuing. It still is today. They also didn't really implement any kind of testing standards until the second week of February. 
And the pandemic was pretty well on its way at that point. And uh, the testing that they did implement wasn't covered by everybody's health insurance because the United States has a privatized healthcare system. It's largely privatized. So not a lot of people had them, <clears throat> had healthcare coverage. So a lot of testing was not available for the masses. And by mid-February, the WHO, the and when I say the WHO, it's the World Health Organization, they actually deemed the test kits flawed, meaning that more cases were actually were suspected than, than were tested uh, negative for. So there were probably more cases than were coming back as positive. There were false negatives. Exactly. Yes, which of course then skewed the numbers, right? And made the numbers look like they were a lot lower than they actually were. Mm-hmm. So instead of focusing on mass testing, the United States decides we're going to start focusing on the vaccine, the race for a vaccine, because then that would be big profits, right? So that was in February, they did that. Another thing that I think came out of this too, was just President Trump had repeatedly and consistently touted the effectiveness of hydrochloroquine, I think is how you pronounce it. Hydroxychloroquine, hydroxychloroquine. Thank you, hydroxychloroquine, even though there was not a lot of evidence, scientific evidence that supported that that it would be effective for treating COVID-19. He announced this, and this was March or April. And then what happened, just by him saying it, this resulted in doctors filling out over 500,000 prescriptions for hydroxychloroquine in one month, even though it's not really scientifically factual that this could even do anything. Mm-hmm. So it just goes to show like this misinformation and this kind of misleading of the public that President Trump does is can, can potentially be quite dangerous. That's a lot of prescriptions for people in one month. So who knows what the after effects are. And it's not just Trump, right? It's the whole system is uh, privatized and really not there to help people get better and get healthier. Uh, but of course, with Trump, with his sort of blustering and blabbering all over the internet, of course, doesn't help yeah, the situation. Exactly. So the other thing that really came out of um, the lack of response in the United States, you know, there's they have a, a federalist system, right? So it's very decentralized. The states are, each individual state is sort of, they, they do things on their own. So they decide on when to make it mandatory to wear masks, for instance, or they decide on if people should be social distancing, for instance, or when to reopen, for instance. And that was the other thing that came out of looking at the United States and how they dealt with this. So not only are they still dealing with like uh, respirator shortages and only three hospital beds per every 100,000 people and thousands and thousands and thousands of people not having health insurance. Millions. Millions, I should say. Yeah. Like 43% of American workers make less than $15 an hour wage. Right. Wow. So the low wage worker crisis has escalated in the U.S. in one month alone. They had 20 million people apply for EI, which was the largest number since the Great Depression. And by July, EI applications were over 40 million. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these workers also don't have paid sick leave or sick benefits, unemployment insurance. So Trump came out with a family's first Corona Response Act in April, but it's it doesn't cover millions of people adequately. So if they do get sick with the coronavirus, 
they don't know how they're going to pay for it. So that it actually started to be where a lot of people weren't actually going to get tested and not wanting to get tested because they didn't know what to do if they lost their job or couldn't work because they were sick. Right. So that can really contribute to a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And people who do, who did lose their job are only going to be getting $400 a week, right? $1,600 a month is not enough to, enough to live on for most families in the United States. Canada is very similar in this way too. So CERB, Canada came up with its own emergency response benefit. Mm-hmm. So in the United States, it was the families first. And in Canada, it was the Canada emergency response benefit. So that was intended, like the family response plan in the United States, it's intended to help people who've lost their jobs during COVID, right? Because Canada also had a 55% increase in unemployment applications as well. Mm-hmm. And um, so like, it's just skyrocketed through the roof. Like 30 and 40% unemployment rates are very worrisome. They're, they're higher than they were in the Depression era, right? Yes. Yeah, they are. Mm-hmm. And it's quite scary for a lot of people right now. They're in really highly precarious situations, right? So mm-hmm. the CERB benefit was 28 weeks. So it's for people who stopped working during COVID-19, uh, lost their job, and who had to be, but you had to be eligible for employment insurance or sick benefits. And it's also for people who are already unemployed and have exhausted their employment insurance benefits, therefore can't find a job because covid has shut down a lot of jobs. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it did up some of the typical EI benefits. You could receive like $2,000 for a month. Right. Which is not which is not a livable amount, especially in places like Toronto. It's not, which has the highest density in Canada, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of people facing evictions. Oh, yeah. Evictions is a whole big mess in both U.S. and Canada right now. Exactly. In the U.S. and Canada, evictions are really scary for people because the Families First Act and the CERB in Canada and the U.S., it's not adequate enough. The, the, the pandemic is going to probably be going on. Some people are saying that could be for another, at least another year, possibly two years. And for Canada, reopening, there's a lot of criticism about how quickly they've been reopening. And in the United States, they started opening things in May. So just a few months after they were exploding, like it, the pandemic was exploding in the US, but they still said, oh, the economy, the economy, the economy. There was even right-wingers out protesting saying, open up the economy. And, you know, this is a, a government conspiracy to, to control us and <laughs> our liberty, our liberty, right? So they start opening and the um, COVID-19 cases peaked in July, June, July and August because of reopening, Uh right? And they're expecting that to happen in Canada as well with the reopening of schools. Right. The schools have been underfunded due to privatization and austerity cutbacks for the last decade. So there's a lot of overcrowding in schools, lack of adequate ventilation, it's expected to spike for sure. Yeah. And by the time this episode comes out, those numbers will be out there already. And uh, yeah, 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 exactly. But getting back to the evictions piece too, like there was already a housing crisis in the United States and Canada prior to COVID-19 and already a food, food insecurity crisis as well happening in Canada and the United States. So poverty, just like a poverty crisis, really. Um, and people working l- low-wage jobs, especially the frontline workers, right? The people deemed essential workers making less than $15 an hour. And they're putting their life on the line for that. 
possibly going to be losing their housing for other workers that couldn't work as many, couldn't work their three jobs, for instance, instead of their only one job. So yeah, it's... In Toronto alone, it's expected that 6,000 people are going to be facing evictions in September. So that's really scary. Yeah. And I think you sent me a link about the food being thrown out. So there's a, there's been a 55% increase in Canada's largest city called the Daily Bread Food Bank. The Daily Bread Food Bank saw a 55% increase in the, the food that the few remaining existing food banks needed. That's massive. I work in social services, as I mentioned before, and we had heard that there was close to 900 people lining up for a food bank in one day in downtown region. Like it's it's becoming pretty desperate. Mm-hmm. And it's, of course, expected to get worse, right? I mean, I could go on and on and on around this. It's It's pretty bleak. The numbers are pretty bleak. It is. Yeah, it's bleak. I mean, at the end of the day, if you just look at the existing conditions that were already there in the United States, for instance, like I mentioned, 43% of American workers make less than $15 an hour. Many workers are working two to three jobs. A lot of the workers that had to, you know, reopen the economy are predominantly Black and Latino workers. Uh, Most of the deaths that happened in the United States and Canada, for that matter, have been um, in very poor populations as well as racialized populations. Yeah. And many of the low-wage workers are employed in retail, right? Restaurants and retail and that kind of thing. Yeah. And what about in Canada? What are some differences in terms of how Canada has handled it? Okay, so unlike the United States, we have more of a public health care system. It's not quite universal, but it's definitely way better than the United States, people can access healthcare. And even if you don't have insurance, you can go to an emergency room, you can get tested for COVID, you can uh, stay in the hospital, get treated for COVID if you need to. However, we have had a lot of cutbacks in our hospital beds. So we're also only at three hospital beds per every thousand people, which is not a lot. You know, that's that was part of the fear in the beginning of the the crisis when the pandemic hit, was that the hospitals were just going to be overwhelmed, Right. Canada, geographically, our population is really centered in the three main cities, Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal. That's where our highest population density is. And Ontario and Quebec also have pretty high population densities. So Ontario and Quebec were kind of the worst provinces in Canada. The worst hit. Yeah, the worst hit. Exactly. And their long-term care homes in particular and their emergency shelter systems for people who are homeless in particular. Because both these provinces have overcrowding situations in both long-term care and homeless shelters. There have been a lot of hyper-privatization and profit-based models for long-term care homes, which are homes for the elderly. And they were the hardest hit in Canada. Really bad. Mm. So by mid-June, the deaths in long-term care homes in Quebec alone passed 4,500. It's a lot of people. And these are elderly people. And people couldn't even see their family members that were staying in there because the outbreaks were so bad. And a lot of the people working in these long-term care homes are making very low wages. Again, racialized populations. Working two jobs on average. They're not protected workers. And the government under federalism, of course, like in Canada as well, uh, the conservative government that we have in now, cut back funding for inspections in long-term care homes just prior to the outbreak of COVID. So 
of course, if you're a for-profit making money-making machine, you're going to take advantage of that and not keep things up to an adequate health and safety level. Yeah, that's neoliberalism, right? Privatizing public services like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's neat. That's the definition of neoliberal capitalism. Exactly. So yeah, it's Canada did a little better than the United States, but overall, it's really because geographically we're we're quite spread out. That's where I think any uh, success happened was because we're more of a spread out country. We only have three big cities that have high de- population densities. So right. Yeah, I think that the United States and Canada get a big fail mark overall. Yeah, I I don't think that uh, we should be sitting in too proud of ourselves exactly. here in Canada right now. Yeah, and we still have a lot of work to yeah. do. We de- we like it, it, mm-hmm. there's going to be a, a second wave for sure, for sure. I'm sure that, yeah. Because we now know that the United States <laughs> is the worst country dealing with COVID-19. But then there's Cuba, for instance, and Cuba's going to, they're, they're, they're coming up for a Nobel Peace Prize. Mm-hmm. Right, Kieran? Yeah. So Cuba has dealt with the COVID-19 crisis in a completely different way. They have an excellent world-renowned healthcare system, which they have for Cuban people, but they also send out doctors all over the world, which we'll talk about in a bit. Cuba generally has a comprehensive all-hands-on-deck emergency preparedness system, which is an approach they use during hurricanes and other disasters as well. Cuba has also lived under a blockade and a constant threat of military attack from the United States for decades. And I think that that is part of their preparedness, which gives them the resilience to be able to deal with, you know, harsh realities like hurricanes or pandemics. Cuba has the highest testing ratio in the Caribbean region, which means that the ratio of tests to reported cases is 25 to 1 in Cuba. So that's how many tests are given versus how many tests come back positive. In uh, Jamaica, it's 16 to 1. And in the United States, it's 5 to 1. In Vietnam, it's 100 to 1. So that's amazing. We're going to talk about Vietnam Mm -hmm. next. Cuba has also mobilized 28,000 doctors, nurses, and medical students to check in person every single one of its 11.5 million people. So they literally sent out teams and teams and teams of doctors and nurses and medical students to check on every single Cuban person living in Cuba. Amazing. Cuba also has been an internationalist taking care of others while taking care of its own people. So in March, there was a cruise ship, a British cruise ship that had over 1,000 people on board, including passengers and crew. And there were five passengers who were tested positive for COVID-19 on this cruise ship. All of a sudden, no other country in the Caribbean was allowing this cruise ship to mm-hmm. come into their port because of there were these local sensitivities towards the coronavirus. And finally, Cuba was uh, the only country that allowed them to come on land. And they actually were, the, all the citizens, the British citizens were able to fly, fly back home. So they were finally able to save these people who were just stranded in the ocean. You know, no other country would take them in. Amazing. And Kieran... It was back in March that the United States had a cruise ship of 200 Americans, their own citizens, show up and wanting to port. But they were turned away. Trump was like, forget it. I'm not taking them. Forget it. Meanwhile, Cuba's taking in people who aren't even their their citizens, Mm. right? And they're accepting them to deal with this. It's just 
It's a world of difference. World of difference. Yeah. The doctor per patient ratio in Cuba is one of the best. It's 8.9 per 1,000 people. By comparison, Brazil has 2.15 and the U.S. has 2.6 doctors per 1,000. Cuba also has about 5.2 hospital beds for every 100,000 people. And it's one of the highest country ratios. Wow, that's amazing. Cuba's world-famous Henry Reeve International Medical Brigade is the brigade of doctors, nurses, and healthcare professionals that the Cuban government sends out to various parts of the world during various disasters. And during this pandemic, they've sent out doctors to various countries, including Italy, Venezuela, and many and many parts of the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. It's going to be 15 years since that Henry Reeve International Medical Brigade was formed by Fidel Castro. And since then, in the last 15 years, they have given medical emergency medical assistance to more than three and a half million people in over 50 oh countries. Gosh, they're amazing. So, And they're up for a new, uh, Nobel Peace Prize, as you said. As they should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ever since 1961, in fact, even before this uh, brigade was formed, Uh, 124,000 health professionals have worked in over 154 countries. So if you go back, yeah, even further. Yeah, they've really, if I can just say to Kieran, I've been noticing a lot of really positive stories coming out about Cuba in some mainstream news sources along around social media and stuff. So this is really unique for Cuba. Like it's, it's the one thing that I will say, it's like Cuba has a has a nice bright light shone on them around their healthcare and how they've been working globally yeah um to to deal with this pandemic and it's really nice to see that because usually there's always chastised and criticized but it's so nice to see that look look this country really does need to be to be uh, looked at as as being incredible totally yeah more about Cuba. So Cuba has a 78-year life expectancy, which is similar to the U.S.'s, but Cuba spends 4% of U.S. health costs per person. So by spending 4% of health costs, as the U.S. does per person, Cuba has the same life expectancy as the U.S. And the Cuban infant mortality rate is lower than the U.S., and it's one-half that of the U.S.'s black population. Yeah. So that's, yeah, the U.S.'s black population's infant mortality rate is quite horrendous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So just a few more things, a few more milestones. Cuba, after the 1959 uh, socialist revolution in Cuba, Cuba eliminated polio in 1962, malaria in 1967, neonatal tetanus in 1972, diphtheria in 1979, Mm -hmm. congenital rubella syndrome in 1989, post-mumps meningitis in 1989, measles in 1993, rubella in 1995, and tuberculosis meningitis in 1997. And Cuba had only 200 AIDS patients when New York City had 43,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember how the, the LGBTQ population got left behind during the AIDS epidemic as well in the United States. And Cuba has done all of this while being under a crushing U.S. economic blockade and sanctions, right? Exactly. And they have done this because they have a rational, planned healthcare model, a socialist healthcare model. Mm-hmm. So instead of, you know, only giving healthcare to the affluent few who can afford to have private healthcare, as it is in the U.S. and in Canada for in growing capacity that way, because Canada is privatizing healthcare more and more, as we can see, 
But Cuba provides excellent quality healthcare to everybody for free. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the things they do is that they have each they have doctor and nurse teams, which basically manage or look after maybe 600 or so patients within a two or three square block area. They live in that area. So the, the doctors and nurses live in the same community where, they, where their patients are. And they are required to see every patient at least twice a year. They uh, often have apartments above the clinic. They frequently walk to the patient's houses to examine them or treat them at home. They know firsthand critical details about their patient's lifestyles. And it's it's a very personalized medical system, healthcare system. And outside, as we discussed, their services, the Cuban medical workers, they are they offer services in almost a hundred countries, which is more than the World Health Organization or the combined efforts of the G eight nations. So all the rich G eight nations, including Canada, they don't provide mm-hmm. anywhere near as much medical support to the world as Cuba does. The little island mm-hmm. living under a blockade is able to do so much. Meanwhile, exactly. Cuba's Latin American School of Medicine, or ELAM, has trained over 35,000 doctors from 138 countries, right? Including graduating 195 U.S. trained doctors. And in fact, they give free medical education to African-American students, as well as to many students from Africa and other parts of the world. This is all reasoning for their Nobel Peace Prize, right? Oh, yeah. It's all of this. Also, like talk, we're hearing you um, talk about how they eradicated all these other diseases prior to even COVID-19 and in the 70s and 80s. They clearly have always valued their healthcare system and health of the population. So they had that infrastructure in place and ready to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic because their healthcare system is valued and the well-being of their population mm-hmm. is valued. Yeah. Cuba has also been treating people with COVID-19 already with cutting edge drugs. And Cuba also has the first candidate vaccine against COVID-19 that's authorized for testing. It's in phase one of clinical trials. It's called Soberana. So this is just the latest news that's coming out. China is the country that's working on the highest number of vaccine candidates, followed by the U.S., Britain, Russia, Germany, and others. But Cuba's is the first in, in Latin America, and it's the first in a poor country. Cuba has also helped Venezuela, which uh, has been also under crushing and brutal and illegal U.S. sanctions. Venezuela's polyhedron sports arena, which has been transformed into the largest field hospital in Venezuelan history, is treating COVID-19 patients. According to Delcy Rodriguez, the country's executive vice president, she said that this facility opened on August 2nd and it has a capacity of 1,200 beds and 300 individual cubicles to provide free Quality healthcare again. Venezuela also socialist also provides free quality healthcare to everybody, uh, and the patients in the Caracas Polyhedron Sports Arena Hospital are being treated by the tenth brigade of the Ernesto Che Guevara contingent, which is composed of eighty-eight Cuban health collaborators. It's quite beautiful to see how Cuba is managing not only their own health crisis, their own COVID nineteen crisis, but also helping other countries that are in the U.S.'s uh, target. Mm-hmm. But also they Cuba, Cuba sent uh, doctors to Italy very early on when nobody else wanted to help Italy. Cuba sent doctors to Italy. And to, to this day, there's been lots of um, displays of friendship and gratitude towards Cuba that have seen coming out of Italy. So it's, that's really nice to see. 
Yeah, it is. So Cuba has overall done an amazing job. And like I said at the beginning, uh, so far, Cuba with a population of 11 and a half million has had four th- a little over 4,000 cases. And, uh, as of today, 94 deaths, which is which are still unfortunate, but it's uh, compared to other countries, it's doing way better. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you look at uh, cases per 1 million people, mm-hmm. So, for example, the United States has 18,342 cases per 1 million people. Okay? Wow. So, that's 18,342 cases per 1 million people. Cuba has 360 cases per 1 million people. Wow. That's a huge difference. Huge difference. Yeah, Yeah. because Cuba is a lot smaller country than the United States. So some people might say, well, it's a smaller country. And that's why. But if you look at that, those kinds of ratios, then you really start to see and and highlight the the incredible response that Cuba has had. Yeah, exactly. So I thought that that that's an interesting way of looking at the numbers. Mm -hmm. too. It is. It's very good. So what about some other countries? How about Vietnam? Do you want us to do you want to tell us a little bit about what Vietnam has been doing? Totally. Well, I think, well, Vietnam has, um, the Communist Party is the leadership in Vietnam. It's a socialist country. And since the end of the war in 1975, Vietnam has been working to set up universal health care. And they're, they're fairly successful at it. Of course, Vietnam is, it's a, it's a growing economy. So there's still some challenging stuff happening there, but they are hailed as one of the fastest growing economies prior to this pandemic. But the Communist Party in Vietnam has always always valued health and well-being of their citizens as a part of what makes their economic growth successful because they have an average economic growth, I think, of 7% annually just prior to the COVID pandemic. But they haven't been hit that hard. In fact, they're being hailed as one of the greatest success stories in how they dealt with the pandemic. One of the most interesting reasons that is that they had a massive media awareness campaign that started out really early on in January. So the first case wasn't until January the 23rd. And between then and early July, there were about 200 cases of infections and no deaths. Vietnam is a country of more than 97 million people. And during their second wave that is now just happening like end of July into August when we're doing this recording, early September, they've only had 29 deaths. So you're talking about uh, the ratio. You remember how I said uh, that the U.S. had 18,000 per 1 million people cases? Well, Vietnam has 11 per 1 million. Yeah. That's, That's an amazing number. And those 29 deaths, I think it's really important to note, were mostly people who had existing health conditions and complications from Agent Orange toxins that came out of the U.S. war um, back in the 70s. So, yeah, the U.S. still affecting Vietnam today during COVID, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So they had a super early response to lockdown and their mass media and awareness campaign. It was intended to mobilize unity in the population and cooperation and to build solidarity around how they're going to deal with this pandemic. And they use the very same techniques and campaign and and awareness that was based on facts and education and also sort of like visuals and slogans that they used that they employed during the Vietnam War as well, because that worked very effectively back then. And it worked again 
today battling the COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So it worked to battle the U.S., mobilize the population, and now it's worked to battle COVID-19. So they had an education and fact-based campaign versus the U.S., which had, of course, a spike in fake news and conspiracy theories. The Vietnamese government were actually fining people very early on if they were spreading fake news. They're like, forget it. This, there's no room for this. There's no time for this. And they had a very centralized, quick centralized national response. Oh, another interesting thing, actually, with people who were needed to be quarantined or isolated, the Vietnamese government went in and knocked on people's doors to, to hand food, to give food out. But they also were doing screenings. So they're like mandatory lockdown folks, but we're going to, we're going to mobilize all of our government forces and we're going to do door to door knocking and, and wellness checks and screening checks. So people might have been in mandatory isolation, but they were checked in on and they were brought food. And the Vietnamese government set up ATM rice machines to deal with um, some of the food insecurity issues very early on. And they were 20, they're 24 hour rice machines and they're free. Yeah. They're mass testing strategies. They started it in January. And then by mid March, they had developed um, a very intense contact tracing and even their own testing. Um, so they made their own rapid test kits that uh, the World Health Organization has like, wow, this is definitely better than the one that the United States developed, <laughs> which was faulty, if you remember me saying that earlier. That's a little bit of a rundown of how the Vietnamese Communist Party dealt with COVID-19 very early on, which is keeping them successful to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. So some of the existing infrastructure, of course, that Vietnam has had since 1975 is their universal health care. So people will be getting treated if they they got COVID. Mm-hmm. And they've been expanding their health care to ensure health care into the sort of poorer or more isolated regions in the countryside. And they've in the last decade, they've been setting up commune health centers. So it's easily accessible for folks that live spread out. So that, that was already existing as well. Mm-hmm. That's great. So, yeah. So I thought... Vietnam definitely needs to get like a super A plus. Mm-hmm, definitely. On they're dealing with things. And, you know, Vietnam shares a border with China and China is a huge country. And Kieran, you dug up some really, really interesting, notable mentions for how China has been dealing with COVID-19. Sure. So China was the first place where COVID-19 was detected. However, it's possible that COVID-19 was present in other parts of the world before it was detected in China. So it hasn't been conclusive yet whether China was where it first began, because they were there. They have found COVID-19 in other parts of the world before, like in 2019, earlier in 2019 as well. So that's still being investigated from what I know. But China was the first place in Wuhan, which is a beautiful city that I have been to myself. And uh, actually, it's a it's a really beautiful city. I love Wuhan. <laughs> so that's where they first detected the virus in late December of 2019. And as of January 11th, China had already released all the genetic data on the new virus for the world mm-hmm. to share with the world to find start finding uh, of treatment and cure for this new virus, novel coronavirus, they called it at the time. 
So they were first also to develop a plan, a coordination plan with the World Health Organization. And within two months, their cases went down rapidly. So they spiked, but then they went down very quickly. They developed, China developed a centralized response similar to Cuba, but on a much larger scale, obviously, because China's population, as I said before, is 1.4 billion people, which is four times the population of the United States. There were three main phases of China's strategy, prevention of import and export of the disease, isolation and lockdowns, and meticulous testing and contact tracing using high-tech AI. There were national efforts to rapidly develop medical technology to fight the virus, including gene sequence analysis, drug and vaccine development, innovative clinical treatments, and they used traditional Chinese medicine, which was also very, very successful in treating those symptoms of COVID-19. There was a zero contact strategy, which was deemed extreme, but it definitely worked. China also built more hospitals and immediately went on a public campaign of no one left behind. So similar to Cuba, where they literally went door to door. So uh, as far as building more hospitals, it, within 10 days, 12,000 workers in China came to build two special makeshift hospitals in Huoshanshan and Leishanshan, which would be able to treat thousands of COVID-19 patients. So these these hospitals were built right in front of us. If you were watching social media back in um, February or March, you saw it happening. There were literally live feeds of these hospitals being built within days. Mm. On January 23rd, China ordered a complete lockdown of Wuhan, a city of 11 million people. It was the largest lockdown in history. And then a few days later, the entire province of Hubei, which is where Wuhan is, the province, which has about 45 million people, was also closed for three months in an effort to completely stop the spread of the virus. Because remember, China is also very densely populated and it has a population of 1.4 billion people. So if this virus had gotten wow. out uh, the way that it was affecting Wuhan, it would have been an absolute disaster. So within a few hours of the lockdown, a total of 42,000 volunteer medics from across the country began arriving to support Wuhan and Hubei. They came to assist Wuhan and Hubei fight the coronavirus from all over China, right? Mm -hmm. In May, Wuhan completed six and a half million tests in nine days. They tested six and a half million people in Wuhan in nine days. Wow. Wow. The Chinese. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. The scale of it, you know, not just that what they're doing, but the scale at which they're doing it. The Chinese military, better known as the People's Liberation Army or PLA, mm -hmm. sent 340 military medical teams with thousands of military medics as well as logistics teams across Wuhan and Hubei province. And they many of them were young military medic students in their early 20s. And then throughout the lockdown in Wuhan, Another 580,000 community volunteers were mobilized to help residents of Wuhan. So nobody could go out shopping. Nobody could, you know, everybody was at home. So these neighborhood councils organized wow. volunteers. So this is what's amazing about Chinese mm -hmm. democracy, that it works on the, on just similar to Cuba, it works on the scale, on, on the level of neighborhood by mm -hmm. neighborhood. The neighborhood councils in China organized 580,000 community volunteers who became fixers for everybody's tedious tasks. They helped elderly people. They oh, organized groceries. That. That's so lovely. 
they drove around every single day to deliver medicines to families. Wow. Right? So these were community volunteers, and this is mutual aid on a massive government mm -hmm. level, right? It's amazing. And most of these volunteers and medics were under 30 because even at that time, it was pretty obvious that the virus affects younger people very little yeah. or not at all, right? Of course, it does affect younger people as well. I just want to clarify that. But there's definitely a difference. Older people and people with medical conditions are much more at risk. And by April 13th, 29.77 million party members and officials were working on the front line across the country. The Communist Party of China has over 90 million members. And it advised or it told its members that they had to go and work on the front line. Because if you're a party member, it is your responsibility to be on the front line fighting against any problems that face the mm -hmm. population. That's why you're a party member. It's a responsibility. Yeah. It's not a privilege. So 29.77 million party members, communist party members and officials were working on the front line across China. Out of the 29.77 million, 2,337 got infected by the virus and 396 people died. Most of them were not from the virus, the deaths, but from being killed in car accidents or by working themselves to death at the front line. So that's the kind of dedication that we're talking yeah. about. So overall, as we can see from some of these numbers, China, similar to Cuba, deployed an immense number of people who were helping communities from house to house, no from kidding. person to person, yeah. and not leaving a single person behind, you know, mm -hmm. all hands on deck kind of approach. Yeah. And that's what's missing in the West. Exactly. That's what's missing in the US and in Canada. Exactly. So, you know, that's that's China. We've covered uh, Vietnam and Cuba. Now, what are some things that you would say we can learn from some of these socialist countries? What are some and what are some things that we could think about that are happening here? Yeah. Also in, in US and Canada, that might be something to look forward to. Yeah, totally. Well, y you know what I love? I love seeing that people are really starting to look at why privatization, like for instance, in Canada, the long-term care homes are being a massive, just disaster, absolutely disgusting conditions. So that became widespread knowledge during the COVID-19. So I'd like to say like the COVID-19 silver linings because it is bleak. It's depressing. It's depressing, right? So even the countries that did well, there's still some deaths and every death is, is, is depressing, right? But at the, at the end of the day, we need to look at to, to keep our hopes up and to keep going. Okay. What, what are these things that we can really learn from? Like you said, keep your rent mobilizing happened. Well, people are, yeah, people are mobilizing really a lot around stopping evictions, right? Yeah, there's going to be like 40 to 50 million evictions across the United States, yeah. you know, and this is, so people are like, no, actually, we need to organize with our neighbors. And in Toronto, we have a couple of comrades involved in the Keep Your Rent organizing um in Toronto and Parkdale organized in Toronto that have been pretty successful in challenging certain legislative stuff around people being evicted. Mm -hmm. So that is something I think is really important. And I would encourage anybody listening to this to get involved with your local organizing groups and see what you can do to help your neighbors out in that, in that way as well. The other thing that there's a lot of stuff happening with unions being able to kind of use 
the disasters that have happened in long-term care and for workers in long-term care to sort of really go and push back against privatization of healthcare places. So there's a lot of um, healthcare workers and union workers mobilizing around that. There's also people realizing they need unions in their workplace and looking mm-hmm. at starting and joining a union in the workplace. So I think in general, unions are making a comeback. I feel yeah. like there's a lot more positive talk about them in mainstream media. Yep. Yep. And, you know, the fight for 15 in Canada and in the U.S., that has gained some, that's gained more momentum because they're realizing, wow, all of these essential work workers out on the front line, grocery store workers, retail workers are getting less than $15 an hour. You know, it's, and they're risking their lives to do so, right? Right. Yeah, I think people are re- talking more about how frontline workers as well as grocery store workers who did not choose to be frontline workers, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing to be a healthcare professional. It's kind of like, okay, it's it's almost like a hazardous job all the time. But mm-hmm. grocery store workers, retail workers did not actually you know, they did not choose to go into a field where their health is compromised at all times. But they are the ones who are also facing a lot of risk by contact, right? Because people are still grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. But I think people are realizing, for example, uh, Amazon, Metro in Canada, Loblaws in Canada had increased their pay for their retail workers. And -hmm. they called it hazard pay, right? And they'd only increased it by a couple of dollars. And then they rolled it back. I think they've all rolled it back by now. Yep. In August. Well, most but of it in August. I think that even, yeah, most of it. But I think even that much has raised a level of co- class consciousness, yes. which I think is really important. Yes. Well, the other thing, too, is like, remember I was talking about unemployment rates in Canada and the U.S.? Mm-hmm. So when we look at, okay, Bezos, Jeff Bezos at Amazon reached a record high. One day, he made $13 million in one day. And the average weekly amount that billionaires made is 42 billion a week during COVID. Meanwhile, their workers are getting less than $15 an hour. And Amazon actually had eight workers die as of August Mm. 2020. Eight workers died in their plants. And this is causing people to really go, what the hell is going on here? How can this be happening? And people are pissed off, rightly so. Right. Because how how can this kind of class war like it's just really shone a light on on the class war that that has uh, existed pre-COVID? Yeah. And I think these kinds of issues and debates that have have been happening on the left for a long time are just becoming more mainstream. You're seeing a lot more, you know, mainstream media, of course, corporate media is going to try to downplay it. But you can see in comments and in discussions that people are having with each other, not in the media necessarily, but just between people, that there's a lot more growing awareness about how public healthcare infrastructure is missing yes. in the US and it's not very good in, in Canada. Like, for example, I've seen articles about privatization of long-term healthcare that I hadn't seen before. You know, I've seen mm-hmm. them in Toronto's Star and CBC and things like that. So there's just this growing awareness that we need more public healthcare infrastructure. Yeah. And there's a, a really amazing public debate that's been happening uh, in Canada, especially around privatization not being great at all. And it's favoring the idea of having more public institutions around healthcare and long term care homes. Shelters have been overcrowded for years in the shelter and housing services 
social sector. So COVID hits and immediately they expropriate hotels. Well, there's a version of it. It's on the spectrum of expropriation, but they take private owned hotels in order to socially distance people who are homeless and house them in a, in, in, in an emergency shelter way. That, that was is Toronto, going, right? That was in Toronto. Yeah. Sorry. Apologies. That was in Toronto. So things like that. It shows, you know what? It can be done. And we're not asking for too much when we say expropriate things and make housing out of it, make public housing out of things. Let's mm. hurry up the repairs, for instance, in the existing public housing. Let's build more public housing. Let's make sure people are off the street and able to socially distance when another pandemic hits. So it, it's a lot of these things that have been implemented now. You know, of course, the local governments and Canadian American governments are saying that, oh, no, this is just for COVID times. But we can push to make sure and organize to make sure that this happens all the time pandemic or not right and learning from the socialist countries why they were successful absolutely absolutely yeah but yeah this was a great discussion kieran thank you so much for this yeah no i think just doing the research for this really opened my eyes so much more even you know i had heard some of these things on social media but then actually researching this really drives it home kind of thing yeah i think the main takeaway is that the covid19 crisis has really just burst open the bubble of capitalism, right? And it's become really obvious that capitalism is not working. In capitalism, you go hungry because there's too much food and the food gets wasted. Mm. In capitalism, you're homeless, but there's too many houses that are empty and too many condos that are being built and that are no- nobody's living in. Exactly. So in capitalism, there's the crisis of too much supply that doesn't actually feed the demand that's out there because Capitalism is about profit. And if there's no profit, then there's no point in feeding the demand. The demand is there, but it's not profitable. Mm -hmm. And that is why we need socialism, because socialism is a rational, humane way of planning a society, of planning an economy. And that's what we can see working in places like Cuba, Vietnam, and China. And that is why we need socialism here in the West, in our countries as well. We do. Yeah. Good takeaway, Kieran. Thank you. Thank you for all the research you did for all this. And uh, you too. Yeah. And I'll see you next time. See you next time. Have a great day. Bye bye. Bye. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Red Life Podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already done so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Red Life Podcast, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash redlifepodcast. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other.